Well, good morning. My name is James Drake. It's good to be with you all today. We're going to conclude our Community of Grace series, wrapping up our study of the book of Titus this morning. If you haven't been here, you're coming in at the end of a movie, and that's okay. I'm going to fill you in on what happened. God saved some people. They didn't deserve to be saved. They didn't do anything good to be saved. God, in his abundance, saved them. But he saved them for a purpose. And he wants them to not get distracted, to stay focused, to finish strong, and primarily kick in the gates of hell together. Thus, we begin our study today. Verse 8, chapter 3. Before I dive in and talk to you about some of these things, uh, I did just want to say, sitting on the front row of church today, I was astounded at some of the things I saw. I saw a musician throw a temper tantrum and throw one of our plants down on the ground. <laughs> the audacity. And then we're going to hear about cat adoption from behind the pulpit. I'm telling you. What is this, PCUSA? Come on, people. It's PCA. It's unbelievable things that are taking place you know, a, uh, a dog and a hat, cat went to heaven. True story. And God looked at the dog and said, what do you believe that I should let you into heaven? And God said, well, I believe in loyalty, service, love. And God said, that's great. You come on in here. You come on here, dog. Then he looked at the cat and he said, cat, what do you believe? Why should I let you into heaven? Cat said, well, for starters, you're in my seat, God. Meredith, I want to encourage you to make some good life choices in Wisconsin when you have a fresh start, and that's to get yourself a dog, okay? All right. I've been, uh, I've been gone for the month of January, so it's really good to be with you all. Uh, I had a privilege of attending a military training program called SFAS. It stands for Special Forces Assessment and Selection. Uh, I want to change the name. I think SFAS should stand for School for Advanced Suffering. <laughs> Out of 400 soldiers that showed up, I was one of the 82 that was very fortunate to be selected. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. I survived. I survived. That's something I never want to do again and do not recommend. <laughs> but it was a privilege to be there and show God step up and work in my life. We're going to talk today in verse 8 about good works and the good works that he's called us to do in light of the gospel of grace. And each one of us has a unique good work that he's uniquely called us to do and uniquely wired us to do, and he's pointed a time and a place for us to do it. And so I just want to share a little bit about my journey and how God showed up in ways that I'll never forget. And and how I'm trusting he's going to continue to guide and lead me. And I hope in doing so, it inspires you to really wrestle with what, how has God uniquely wired me? And what is he calling me to do? And how can I just continue to walk forward in faith and say, here I am, Lord, use me. So, not many chaplains go to SFAS. Uh, it's where they teach people how to become Rambo. And when they found out a chaplain was there, everybody wanted to know, what are you doing here, chap? I explained to them that Christ died to set people free. And I believe it was a sacred calling. And it would be an honor to serve alongside them. 
and pursue excellence together. As I began my journey, I saw each day, I didn't know if I had what it'd take. And so I decided, in addition to just trying to survive the cut and get selected, that maybe God had me there to encourage some other men along the way, help them dig down deep, not quit, rise up and reach their potential. And so I really just wore that chaplain hat. I didn't try to be Rambo. I didn't try to be somebody I wasn't. I just was the chap. And I tried to encourage men. And along the way, I was encouraged. And week one is called Gate Week. It's where they test your mettle. They test you mentally, physically. They want to see if you're a little bit crazy or how crazy you are. They can handle some crazy, but not too much. And so they run you through obstacle courses and they send you on long ruts and short ruts. They have you do all sorts of combat tests. They make you take personality profiles and IQ profiles and they're really trying to measure you up and see where you stand. At the each one, you, you don't know how you did. There's no feedback. They want you to be self-motivated so you're not allowed to cheer other people on either. At the end of that week, they cut 100 men and there's 300 of us still remaining. I talked to the men before that first, what they called reaper formation, and I told them, you're more than what you do. You're more than what you have. You're more than what other people think about you. Your true identity is not a number. None of us went by names. We were all just a number. You're not a number. You're not what the cadre thinks about you. You're not what your IQ says. You're not even your MOS. That's your military specialty. Your true identity can only be received, it can't be achieved, because one day you won't be able to do those things anymore, and you'll still be someone. And I said, ultimately, only an owner and creator has the right to name something, and your heavenly Father is both those things, and he alone has the right to name you. So you trust him and you honor him, and he'll get you where you need to go. Week two, we began land navigation. I was very fortunate to come in top 10 in gate week, so I was feeling good about my old self as a chaplain. But now, uh, I was going into land nav. I grew up in the city, and I didn't have a lot of experience navigating in the woods with a compass and a map that's 20 years old, outdated, not accurate, but anyways. So I started trekking along and finding my points, and I was very average. I, I, I didn't shine there, but I luckily didn't fail. By God's grace, I was able to get enough points to keep making it to the next day. And then on the last two days, you begin what's called the star course. Your points get really big. You start moving long distances and you cover a lot of ground, probably about 26 miles a day with about 90 pounds on your back and you have 10 hours to do it. Half of those are at nighttime, the other half are during the daylight. And anyways, I got to going. I was a little more confident because I'd spent three days out in the field and this was my fourth day. And so I began with my strategy, which was since I can't see anything, the moon was completely absent. It just took the night off. Uh, there was clouds over sky, so even the stars weren't illuminating anything. And we're in the middle of the bush and you can't see anything, you gotta move forward. So you're literally just, you might as well walk forward with your eyes closed and you're, you're holding a, a fake gun, a rubber gun, just trying to keep spider webs and thorns off your face. Well, as I'm pressing through there, my strategy was, since I can't see anything, I'm not going to be able to use terrain features. I'm just going to trust this compass here. I'm going to follow it wherever it leads. And so I just set out in the direction I felt like I needed to. I kept my pace count. And I had this road off to the left, but I had to be careful not to get too close to it because one of the rules are if you get too close to the road, you become what's called a roadkill. 
So you got to stay at least 50 to 100 meters away from the road. Well, guess what? You don't have a tape measure. So you stay away from that road because the cadre are out there and they're looking for you. And as an officer, you only get one shot at this. If you get road killed, you're out. You go home, you don't get a second shot. So I'm being super safe. I'm following my azimuth. I'm keeping my pace count. And I start heading north when I feel, feel like I need to head north. But then I start noticing things that weren't on my map. There's a light for starters, like in pitch darkness, there's a light. So you can see it for miles. I think, well, maybe that's headquarters, but that shouldn't be there. So I'm looking at my map and I'm looking at the distance. I'm looking at my map. And so I take a few times, because one of the things I learned in carpentry and in land nav is you measure twice, you cut once, or in this case, you hike once, because you really want to know what you're doing. So I got to get down, I cover my head, you can't let any light be seen. I pull out my red light, I look at the map, I then turn the light off, stand up, I look at my terrain. I do this a few times and then I set off. Eventually I figure out where I'm at and that excitement is quickly erased because I look down and I realize there's no gun in my hand. If you don't have your gun, that's a major violation. You've lost your equipment. The problem is I've been hiking in pitch black darkness from the hours of 3 to now 5 a.m. I've covered a few miles. There's no trail behind me. I haven't crossed anybody. It's a pine forest and it's a black rubber fake gun. I start to panic. I say, Lord, please help me. Please help me find that gun. I do not <clears throat> want to go home because I lost my fake gun. I've prepared for this moment literally my entire life. My unit, they have sacrificed thousands of dollars for me to be here. I feel like this is what you call me to do, God. Please, I need your help. So I start to search. And I feel my heart rate come a little bit down after that prayer, but I was still frantic. I thought it was ironic that just eight hours before, I had sat all the men down that wanted to come to my chapel service. Because they were all nervous. Anytime they start coming and asking you, for, hey, chap, will you pray that I find all my points? We pray? All? Yeah, sure. Let's have a chapel service. We're going to talk. <laughs> so they come out. Tons of them come out. And I tell them the antidote to fear is faith. And I showed them where Jesus said, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Look, look at the lilies of the field. Solomon, all his splinter wasn't closed like one of those lilies. That's how God closed the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Is he not going to take care of you? Oh, you have little faith? And look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And what's worry going to do? It's, it's not going to help at all. But you seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will follow. I said one of the best ways to seek first God's kingdom is just to pray. Acknowledge your heavenly Father. Tell him you need his help. He's going to help guide and direct you. Well, boy, did I have an opportunity to practice what I preached eight hours later. There I was, panicked anxiety creeping in. If you know anything about it, like nervousness and anxiety, it's that flight or fight. Like the creative thinking's gone. You're just like tunnel vision. Ah, what am I going to do? Where's my gun? And I'm just looking and I'm turning my light on real quick and I'm turning it off because I don't want the cadre to find me. If they find me without a gun, I'm dead. And having a light out in pitch darkness is like, hey, over here, over here. So I'm turning my light on, searching. So the only time you can use your white light is if you, if you misplace your gun. So I'm looking, I'm looking. And I'm moving. Well, I keep praying. And when I run out of things to say, I start singing hymns. Problem is, I don't know many. So I sang Amazing Grace a hundred times. 
I sang How Great Thou Art, or at least the chorus, a thousand times. Three hours later, as the sun rose, I said, God, you got to help me find this gun. I can see now. I cover all this terrain. I literally backtrack all the terrain that I felt like I've covered. Still no gun. At this point, I'm like, you know what I'll do? I'll go back to headquarters where there's some guys that have been involuntarily withdrawn. They're already kicked out. What do they need their gun for? I'll get theirs. You ever try and solve problems in your own strength? So I went back. I, I, I hiked an extra half mile or so back to the top. And it was swarming with cadre. I couldn't go anywhere near there. If they would have seen me, I would have been dead meat. So I said, that's not going to work. So I went one more time. I said, Lord, you got to help me find this. I didn't find it. And I said, God, are you hearing me? Like, help. But in that moment, I felt peace in my heart that I, I, I tell you, it was beginning to, there's just a peace. It's, it's going to be okay. Just move forward. I said, I, I can't. I can't even get to my first point if I don't have all my equipment. The, the cadre there will not give me my next point. But in my heart, I just, I heard, Lord, move forward. You got to move forward. You've looked long enough. So that's what I did. I picked up a stick that looked like a gun <laughs> and I moved forward. And as I'm covering a, a lot of ground as fast as I can, because now I can see and I know where I'm going, I see another candidate like myself walking across the wood line. Now, there's hundreds of candidates out there. There's 300 of us out there, but we're in literally hundreds of acres. You're not allowed to talk to anybody and you'll pass a few, a handful of people throughout the day. So this is the, one of the first guys I've seen. And we're literally going to be intersecting. We're in the middle of the woods, so I'm not too worried about Kadri being around. And I look on his face, and he's terribly distressed. And I realize he's our class leader. He's like the man's man of the group. He's from the Ranger Battalion. He's a Ranger. He's a combat-tested medic. But something's terribly wrong. I break the rules, and I say, are you Okay. He said, no, chap, I'm not. Will you pray for me? I put my hand on his back, and I didn't care that moment who saw or what was going to happen, and I prayed with him. And he started to weep and convulse. And when I was done, I said, what's wrong? He said, chap, I want to go home. I've served my time. I want to see my boys grow up. I said, well, I think I can help you today. I need a gun. <laughs> He looked down at my stick and he just smiled at me. He said, chap, I think I can help you out. And he gave me his gun. I ran for the rest of the day. I made my points. I advanced. I saw that guy in camp that night. And he came up to me and he had a big smile on his face. And he said, they're sending me home, chap. Thank you. I said, no, thank you, brother. I'll never forget how God used you in my life. You're an answer to my prayers. We both teared up and gave each other a hug. They sent that man home. And the next day I broke the rules again and tied the gun to my hand because I wasn't going to lose it. <laughs> you know, God will show up in your life in the most unlikely times and the most unlikely ways. No one's ever going to convince me that God isn't real because I've seen him show up in my life too many dang times. But he always shows up in his time and his ways. But I know he wants us just to move forward in faith. So I don't know what good work God's called you to in light of the glory 
glory of the gospel and what he's done in your life, but he wants to do something through your life too. And it's never going to all be perfect. And it's never just going to work out. And you're just going to have to take that next step of faith. And I know a lot of you like me don't know what to do and don't know what your next step should be. And you wonder how in the Lord, how in the world can the God use my workplace or my situation or my neighborhood or my community and bring any glory to himself. I'm a wretched mess. Well, I've got good news for you. Christ died for the ungodly. I qualify. You do too. And he's going to make straight lines with crooked stits. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in your weakness. You step out. You trust him in faith because he's going to get all the glory. Everyone's going to know you didn't do whatever great work he has for you in your own strength. So you just do it. When I was out there in the woods, I was so frustrated because two weeks prior we had gotten there and it was a full moon. It was bright as daylight at night. You could see everything. But after two weeks, the, the moon had begun to wane. And now it's just a sliver of light from the moon. I couldn't help but think that's how so many of us live our lives. There's no light in us. Christ is the light of the world. The only thing good in us is Jesus Christ. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't deserve to be saved. There's nothing good in us apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no light on that moon. There's no light in that moon. It's only the light from the sun that reflects off that moon. That's what we're called to be and do. And so many of us are just illuminating like a little sliver of light because we got fire and life insurance and that's good enough for us. Shame on us. God set us apart and he's called us to be his hands and his feet in a world that desperately needs the light of the gospel. And we need to take our stand and we need to say, here I am, Lord, in all my brokenness, use me. And he will. And he'll shine brightly in you and through you. And you'll experience the joy that God intended for your life. One of my favorite stories I've got notes. I should use them, shouldn't I? I'm just going to tell you stories. One of my favorite stories is from my wife about a janitor at her high school. His name is Mr. Lussie. He cleans toilets and cleans the floors and dresses like a wild man. He's 91 years young, still serving strong at Providence Christian Academy in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been more influential in that school than any principal or any teacher. Every morning, he would go to the front of the school to welcome every child that walked through those doors. On their birthday, he would call them and celebrate their life. My wife has graduated from high school. I'm not allowed to, to tell you how long ago, but many decades ago. And she still gets a call from Mr. Lessie on her birthday. I'm telling you, God can use you wherever you are to do mighty good works. And those good works aren't going to save you. Jesus already saved you. But they're going to help you experience the joy and the meaning and the value and the purpose that God has for your life. And he's going to use those good works to advance his gospel and tell his story. I have a lot of people like to quote to me, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. I have a message for you. It's a message. Words are needed. But people are going to watch your life and it will be the loudest sermon that you ever preach. 
And so proclaim the gospel and let your life proclaim it as well. We turn our attention now to verse 9. And we see that Paul says, avoid foolish controversies and the such. You know, I think a lot of people get caught up and get distracted with a lot of things. Jesus told uh, a parable about some seeds. And very few of those seeds grew up to be healthy and vibrant plants that produced fruit. A lot of them got snuffed out by distractions. Uh, a lot of good Christians I know mean well, but... Uh, I think they're just making points, not a difference. And I think God's calling us to make a difference, not just a point. And we've got to keep our eyes on the goal. And I think this is what Paul is calling us to. I mean, think about it. Don't get caught up in foolish controversies and decisions. I mean, did Paul not write like 85% of his letters dealing with bad theology and crazy doctrine? I mean, most of his letters, he's talking about the freedom he has in Christ as he's writing from prison. I think he's just reminding us in context that yes, ideas have consequences and yes, truth matters. But don't get caught up winning the battle, or excuse me, forsaking, winning the, the battle, but forsaking the war. Keep your eyes on the goal. The primary goal is not to make a point, but make a difference in Jesus' name, to advance the gospel. And sometimes that's gonna require you laying down and sometimes it's going to require you taking a stand. Only the Holy Spirit will give you the difference to know what you should do and when you should do it and how you should do it. But don't forget that you've been called to make a difference, not just a point. And there's no sense in punching people in the nose and then asking them to smell the fragrance of the gospel. I want to tell you a story about a young lady named Keisha Thomas. She was at a protest in Michigan, and she was protesting against the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and their white supremacy ideas. Well, during that protest, uh, there's thousands of people that came, and there's just about 100 or so KKK members. And one of those KKK members ended up on the wrong side of the barrier in the crowd. And whoever had the microphone at that moment said, there's one of the KKK in here. And everybody turned. And then they looked at his shirt. He had on a Confederate flag. And then they looked at his arm and he had a swastika. And all of a sudden the crowd turned on him. Somebody yelled, kill that Nazi. And that man began to run and he fell. The crowd surrounded him and they started to beat him. And all of a sudden, Keisha Thomas, 18 years young, black woman, lays down on top of this man and protects him and begs the crowd to spare him and save his life. The photographer that took this picture was interviewed and said, what, what, what did you think? What happened? He said, well, Keisha came out of nowhere and she put herself in harm's way to protect a man that I doubt would have done the same for her. Later on that year, Time Magazine went and voted this picture of the year. Keisha's story impacted an entire generation because she knew she was called to make a difference and not just a point. She was there to defend an idea, but when things went crazy and mob rule began to reign, 
She remembered that behind that ideal was human dignity. And that the KKK wasn't just wrong, but she was there to defend all of human life and the dignity thereof. And she protected that man. We've been called to make a difference and not just a point. And I pray that God will help us like Keisha to know how to go about doing that. In verses, or excuse me, verse 10, we look at Paul's admonition to avoid people that cause division amongst our ranks. Somebody asked me what a heretic was. I said, well, anybody that disagrees with you for the most part, that's the way we feel. You know, when you deal with somebody that's causing division in your ranks, especially amongst the church, what the scripture is calling us to here is to, to correct them and, and do that maybe two times. And then after that, stop casting your pearl before the swine. How many of you are married? How many of you have tried to change your spouse? How many of you has that worked for? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So you got to let God do his work and you do your work. You trust God with that person. God, I've tried to talk to him. I tried to handle things through biblical conflict resolution like he called me to in 1 Corinthians and Matthew 18. And well, they just won't hear me. So I give them to you. I pray you'll change their hearts. Help them to, to fight for unity and for the sake of the gospel. But I'm done, Lord. I'm wiping the, the, the dirt from my feet, sand, the, the dirt off my sandals. I'm moving forward here, Lord. You don't have to go and kill them. That's what the early church did. They hung them at the stake and burned them. You don't have to do that. You don't have to cancel them, all right? But you can commit them to the Lord and, and let God begin to work in their life. And if they don't repent, chances are they're not a Christian anyways. And so then you can pray for their salvation, but they shouldn't be in the church and divide in it. Verses 12 through 13, Paul begins to list some of his friends. We see Aramaeus, Tychicus, Xenia, and Apollos. You know, the bottom line is you can't go do these things that God's calling you to do alone. You need a community. Yeah, you need a, a band of friends, a band of brothers to stand alongside you, to fight the good fight. And this is what these men were to Paul. We, you know, we didn't... We don't know much about Artemis. He's not mentioned in scripture, nor is Zenus, but Zenus is actually a miracle. Uh, he's a lawyer and a Christian, so it's just phenomenal. Uh, Tychicus accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey, and he was called a beloved brother and friend. So he, he must have been like Timothy, just a, a very encouraging fella. And then Apollos was like Paul, just a, a mighty force for good, a, a great missionary that we read about. You know, if, you, if, if you're missing friends like that in your life, then, um, well, get, get plugged in a community group, right? That's a good place to probably meet some good people. Two, uh, uh, consider maybe becoming a friend to others. Uh, I did college ministry for a long time, and some of the loneliest people would come up to me and be like, I just don't have any friends. And I'd always tell them, well, just be a friend, and you'll be amazed how many friends you have. But sometimes we get so caught up in our world and ourself and our struggles that we don't think about anyone else but ourselves. And, well, that doesn't make us very good friends. So if you want to have friends, be a friend. And one of the best things you can do is to help other people uh, understand God's love and grace in their life and help them do whatever it is God's calling them to do. And you'll be amazed as you serve and support them how you're going to grow and how you're probably going to gain a friend. 
I read a book the other day by John, or excuse me, Jim Rohn, and his argument, he's a business guy, and he just said, hey, you're the sum average of your five closest friends. And so all truth is God's truth, so there's probably some truth in there. The bottom line is we're going to be influenced by those around us, and we are a product of our environment to some degree. So, so think about who you're running with and what direction you're running in and, and how you can be a friend to others. That's what Paul did. He said, don't just support my missionary journey, support theirs as well. In verse 14, uh, Paul does what only Paul does and what most men do. We repeat ourselves. And Paul's repeated himself quite a few times. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 16, he basically says, a lot of you say you know God, but your works don't reflect that. In chapter 2, he says, in light of your salvation, you should be excited about doing good works. And then here in chapter 3, two times, he's reminded the body of Christ of the good works that they've been called to, that they've been saved for a purpose. My main point that I took away from this, and I, I hope to leave you with it, is that God can use our good works for his glory and our good. And our communities desperately need that. Please hear me out. This is really important. It is not the government's responsibility to solve our community's problems. Let me, I'm going to say that again because this is very important. It is not the government's responsibility to solve our community's problems. Primarily, it should fall on our shoulders. We're called to be the hands and feet of Christ, to make a world a better place for everyone in Jesus' name. And the more we relegate to the government, the more we're advocating our responsibility and opportunity to advance the gospel. So, if you ever hear someone say, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, run. That's what Ronald Reagan said to us. My good friend Tony from the CFC uh, told me that this week. He's a man who's living out this verse, who's really taking a stand for what is good and what is true, to see the gospel go forth in the public square. And I'm so grateful for him and his ministry and for joining us this morning. You know, I want to leave you with a quote. This is from a famous secular historian. And uh, they're not a believer, but as they looked at the life of Jesus and all the good things that have been done in Jesus' name, this is what they had to say at the end of the day. Jesus of Nazareth, without any money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since. And he produced effects which lie beyond reach of oration or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motions and furnished themes for more sermons, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of ancient and modern times. Jesus is not someone you can ignore. He is without a doubt the most influential human in all of history. Paul reminds us that he's more than that. He's God himself. And he's not only saved us, but he saved us for a purpose. And one of the greatest privileges of your and my life is to discover what that purpose is and to walk in it 
not only as individuals, but as the body of Christ. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. And we seek to not only experience your grace, but to live in a manner worthy of it. I pray, Lord, as we proclaim the gospel to a watching world, that we would also proclaim it to ourselves because we so desperately need you each and every day. We fail time and time again, and in and of of ourselves, we can do nothing. But God, if you are with us, nothing can stand against us. What is impossible with man is possible with you, Lord. So we ask that you to do a great work in our hearts and lives, that you would be our Lord, our God, and our King, our great Savior, who transforms us from the inside out and calls us to be your hands and your feet in a world. Lord, thank you for the dignity that you give each one of our lives by having a special and unique purpose for us. Help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in that work. I pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.